Well, I invite you to open our scripture passage, and actually we have another long one here today. Uh, we are covering a handful of chapters, and so it might be easier to follow along on the screens. Uh, we're not going to read all of Exodus 35 to 38, um, but a few selections of it, and then I'll be uh, referencing it throughout the sermon. So, starting uh, in verse 1 of Exodus 35. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath, a day of Sabbath, rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord, everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins, dyed red or another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its coverings, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The ark with its poles and the atonement cover and curtain that shields it. The table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence. The lampstand that is for light with its accessories. Lamps for oil for the lights. The altar of incense with its poles. The, al- the anointing oil and fragrant incense. The curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils. The bronze basin with its stand. The curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases. The curtain for the entrance to the courtyard. The tent pegs for the tabernacle for the courtyard and their ropes. The woven garments woven for ministering in the sanctuary. Both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, brooches, earrings, uh, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, or ram skins, dried dyed red, or the other durable leather, brought them. And jumping forward to 36.2, Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Ohiliab and every skilled person to whom, the word, to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent his word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as, a sanctuary, as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. And then jumping forward to 38 verse 24. 
the total amount of gold from the wave offerings used for all the work on the sanctuary was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. The silver obtained from those of the community were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. One becca per person, that is, half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel from everyone who had crossed over to those counted, 20 years old or more, a total of 603,550. The 100 talents of silver were used to cast the bases for the sanctuary and for the curtain, 100 bases from the 100 talents, one talent for each base. They used the 1,775 shekels to make the hooks for the posts, to overlay the tops of the posts, and to make their bands. The bronze from the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. They used it to make bases for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the bronze altar with its bronze grating and all its utensils, the bases for the surrounding courtyard and those for its entrance, and all the tent pegs for the tabernacle and those for the surrounding courtyard. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask it in particular as we read uh, this passage and all these details that are so foreign to us and we can wonder why it even matters to us. And yet, Lord, you say your word is living and active and it is profitable for us to become complete in you. And so we pray, Lord, that through the power of your spirit as we hear your word, that you would actually do a building work in our own hearts. And as we look at the building of the tabernacle, you would be building us up in Christ Jesus to make us your living tabernacle. And we pray that you would do these things in these next few minutes. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, probably just about all of you know that uh, we just recently moved to a new house like a quarter mile down the street from our old house. And we had a fairly strict criteria for the type of house we would want to buy next. And Lisa had been looking um, almost every day probably for a year to three quarters of a year. And there was absolutely nothing that met all of our criteria for where we wanted to move. But then kind of out of the blue last December through a neighbor, we were given this opportunity to buy a house down the street from ours that met every single one of our criteria, and the house never even would go on the market. And it was this incredible blessing of a house just gifted to us, fell into our laps, and it was amazing how everything worked, given especially how crazy the housing market is. And so Lisa and I have been so thankful for this blessing, and yet, as we were moving in, I felt this kind of critical spirit rising up within me. Like I would notice things in the new house, like every little flaw and all the stains on the walls that I hadn't noticed before and not really liking some of the paint choices or the cabinet choices. And I had this weird tension because at one hand, I knew we'd been given this amazing blessing. And on the other hand, I was feeling kind of grumpy. And I realized that part of it was because even though we had this wonderful house, it didn't feel like home. It was different from our old house. It felt foreign and it felt cold. We had built our old home some eight years ago, which meant we picked everything for it, for where some of the walls would be, to the cabinets, to the countertops, to everything, and we loved it. And then we spent those next eight years filling that home out with finishing the basement, painting accent walls, working in the yard, building a pergola. We had spent all kinds of time making that our home, and this new place didn't feel like home. But then earlier this week, it was interesting, I swung by our old place, which 
were renting out uh, to some other folks to replace some blinds that had broken. And as I walked into our old house, I was struck because it no longer felt like home. It was foreign. And I realized that a transition had taken place. Our new house was becoming our home. And I felt thankful for that blessing that we'd been given. Every one of us, we long for a place to call home. Maybe you have that place. Maybe you thought you had a home, only to watch it fall apart. Maybe you're still waiting on it. Maybe you're trying to find it. And what our passage is about today is about God building a home for his people. That's what all these chapters are about, all these details. In the end, it all focuses on this one thing. God is building a house that he, so that he can live with his people. And these chapters, which can be a little bit overwhelming and boring for us, are really the building plans for God's home among his people. And in the same way, you might not spend a lot of time looking at some random architectural drawings of somebody else's home. But if they're the architectural drawings for the home that you're building, I guarantee maybe even every night you pull them out again and look at them and dream about what could be and are excited about it. These are the building plans for God's home. And what is amazing about it is he actually invites his people to participate in the work. And that's the thing I want you to remember this morning, that we get to help build God's home. We get to help to build God's home. And we're just going to look at this under two sections. First, a new creation, and then God's workers. So we've been in the book of Exodus for over, well over a year, and the second half of the book feels like a sharp left turn from all the excitement of the first half of the book. It's like someone snuck in, ripped out all the action-packed pages, and replaced them with random design documents. And as you look through our passage, you, you might, as I was reading it, you might have think, I've heard this before. And you aren't crazy. Because what we have here is sometimes repeated even word for word from Exodus 25 through 31. And if you remember, those chapters are where God gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. And then all these chapters are where the people are carrying out those instructions for building it. And don't miss the significance of this obvious point. Moses just repeated a lot of stuff that he had already written down during an age when paper is more rare than toilet paper in 2020. Right? Like, you couldn't just get some more, you know, buy some more reams of, of paper and, and write it down, or with the computer, just copy and paste everything you wrote before and make a few edits to change it up. Moses was writing all of this by hand. And his hand would have reminded him of how long all of this was, which shows the importance of these passages to the original audience. They thought this material, these details, are worth copying down twice. And one of the reasons is because the building of the tabernacle was in some ways the whole point of the book of Exodus. It's not that someone replaced the exciting stuff with the boring stuff. It's actually this stuff is why all that exciting place stuff was there. Remember, why did Moses tell Pharaoh to let his people go? Because they were to go out to be able to worship their God. The whole exodus took place so that they could go and build a home for their God and worship him. So even though this material is important, if I'm honest, though, as I was working on this passage, I found it a little bit hard to not just repeat a lot of the stuff I said a few weeks ago when we looked at 25 through 31. But one of the key differences 
between that passage and this is this idea of how the people were involved in it. Right? The, the tabernacle might not mean the same thing as it did for this original audience, but that theme of us helping build God's home is just as applicable for us as it was back then. And so we're going to look at a number of passages to help see how this passage applies to us, how we are helping to build God's home. So our passage begins with the repetition of the Sabbath commandment, which has shown up a few times in the last couple chapters. And one of the previous points is when we have the ending of all the instructions for the temple or the tabernacle, we get the Sabbath commandment from God. And then when they begin the work of building the tabernacle, which we have here, is a repetition of the Sabbath command. Now, on one hand, this makes sense because Israelites are about to start on this really big building project, right? And those of you, particularly if you're in construction, you know when there are deadlines, there is, you know, we are going to get this done and work all hours of the day to complete the work. But it makes sense then that God reminds them, no, you've got certain working hours, right? You need to take this day off. You need to make it holy. You, you don't even, shouldn't even light a fire to cook a new meal. Take that leftover manna and eat that so that you can rest. Now, there's something else going on here, though. Because one of the interesting features that uh, commentators have noticed is that in 25 through 31, chapters 25 through 31, there are six times when it says, the Lord said. It, it seems almost intentional. And then the seventh time it says, the Lord said, is in chapter 31, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must obey my Sabbaths. And he goes on to explain that. Now, if you think about it, where else in the Bible do we have this repetition of it saying, and God said six times? Well, if you think back to Genesis 1, where six times, one for each day, how does each day begin? And God said, and God said, right? And then what happens on that seventh day? Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Commentators have noticed how Moses seems to be intentionally arranging God's speech for the construction of the tabernacle with echoes of God's speech for the creation of the world. So that Moses here is showing that the building of the tabernacle is almost like a work of second creation. We're building, God, through God, something new. And what is one of the key features of the first creation? Well, it's the Garden of Eden, right? And as you look particularly in the temple even, there are all kinds of echoes between details of the temple and details of the Garden of Eden. But one thing I want to draw your attention to is in Genesis 3, 8, God comes to the Garden of Eden, and it says he walks back and forth in the garden. And that language about God walking appears several times more in the Old Testament, but it's in reference to the tabernacle or the temple. So in Leviticus 26, 11 to 12, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you, the same language from Eden, and be your God, and you will be my people. Or 2 Samuel 7, 6, 
I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving, same Hebrew word, walking from one place to another place with a tent, which is the tabernacle, as my dwelling. So we can see why is there so much detail in Exodus about giving the detail for the tabernacle? Well, it's because in one sense, the people are beginning the work of building a new Garden of Eden for God to walk in among his people. That, that's why there's such a focus even on the skilled laborers here. Right? Because you don't want just amateurs building a new Garden of Eden. So first there's the women mentioned in 35, 26 and 20, 25 and 26, who are skilled in spinning to produce the fine yarn needed for these elaborate curtains. Then there's Bezalel, who in 35:30 it tells us was chosen by God. And note, filled uh, with the Spirit of God. And where else do we think of the Spirit of God? Well, go back to Genesis 1, right? And the Spirit of God was there active in creation, and now God's Spirit is active in the work of this second creation. And he was, had wisdom and with understanding and knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And then there's Ohiliad, 35 33, with similar skills for engraving, embroidering, and weaving. And this is why God is so concerned that they do the work, 36.1, quote, just as the Lord commanded. God was the only one who knew what the first garden was like, so you better follow his plans as you create the second one. The people are creating something like a new garden of Eden in the desert, where God can walk among them in a similar way to how we did with Adam and Eve. Now, there's certain big differences, right? Like, because God can't, they can't all dwell inside that tabernacle, but it's the closest they could get. And that tabernacle would be their source of life, of living water, and of bread from heaven as they traveled through this dry desert. Now, before we move to the next point, one other place we've got to look at where this tabernacle language shows up. And it's at the beginning of the Gospel of John, when it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and maybe you've heard before that that language of he made his dwelling is the Greek word for tabernacle. Right? That the word tabernacled among us. So John is saying that this tent which served the purpose of housing God on earth for the Old Testament people, has now moved to a person. God's presence is now housed in a human body. The Word became flesh. And that new tabernacle, well, that old tabernacle where God would walk among his people in the desert, was now walking among his people in flesh and blood. And the animal skins of that old tabernacle have been replaced by living human skin. And Jesus makes this explicit in the next chapter of John, where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews are all confused because they say, well, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then there's this comment, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The tabernacle was in one sense like an early form of Jesus' presence that would go with the people through the desert. And Jesus comes and becomes a better tabernacle. Flesh and blood is better than yarn and gold. Jesus becomes a living tabernacle 
where he can walk among his people. And this leads us then to the second point, God's workers. And and one of the key details in this passage is the, the contributions of all the people. Moses puts out the call for help, going back to 35 verse 5. From what you have, take an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue, and scarlet yarn. And then it continues through all the supplies that are needed to build the tabernacle. And then he puts out a call for skilled workers to construct these things. And the people start bringing their offerings. And what is amazing is they don't stop bringing their offerings. They bring one load and go back home, and the next day they've got another load of stuff to contribute. It is this beautiful picture of generosity in unity where everybody in the community is bringing forth their riches to contribute to the tabernacle. What What a beautiful picture, if you remember just a few chapters ago, where they were, what, bringing forth their stuff to build a golden calf. Now the people are bringing forth their offerings to honor God. And the generosity is actually too much, right? How often do you ever hear that in in church or in any situation, right? We have too much help. We have too much money. Please stop giving stuff. And so the craftsmen tell Moses in 36.5, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord, the work the Lord has commanded to be done. And then at the end of the passage, 38.24, 38.24, there's an accounting of all the gold, silver, and bronze used, several tons worth of materials. And the people understood the significance of this building project. That's why they're so invested. That's why they're bringing all these things in, right? They're not just bringing a fancy tent to build up in the desert. They are building a home for God. They are building a home for God that replicates God's first home on earth, Eden. They are building a home on earth for God that replicates even the heavenly places. Remember when we talked about that back when we looked at the first passage about the tabernacle, that the tabernacle was like a model of creation. It was a mini replica of heaven down on earth and represented even God's highest heavens in the Holy of Holies. And God invites them to help out with this work. Which is just striking, because God certainly could have done the work himself like he did in in the first creation. He would have gotten it done a lot faster, probably would have been better quality, and yet he hands his people a hammer and asks them to help. Last weekend, I built this small platform in our garage for storage, and it took all of Saturday and at various times during the day, kids would come out and want to help. And if you ever had young kids that want to help when you're working on projects, you know you always feel a little bit conflicted, right? Because involving the kids makes it take longer. And sometimes it involves fighting because they all want to help with the same thing at the same time. And you might have to redo some of what they do. And, you know, the project is already taking longer than you first thought it would be. But I, fi- I figured, well, I'm going to find ways for them to help. So I... I I'd start some of the screws, and then I'd let Molly take the impact driver and finish driving the screws into the wood. At one point, I even let her pull the trigger on the, uh, the nail gun. I would score sheets of drywall, and then let Hannah snap those sheets and carry them over to where we were building this platform. And for all the extra time that it took, and even though it's a little bit frustrating sometimes, when you watch your kids take pride in their work, actually pushing down on the impact driver enough to get the screw all the way in there. 
or snapping the drywall and seeing it make this nice clean line, it brings a greater joy than just if I were to be doing it out there by myself the entire day. And in a similar way, God delights in watching his children pick up the tools and work with their hands and build something for him to live in, even if it takes a lot longer than if he did it himself. And what this passage gives us is this beautiful picture of the people all of one mind with generosity, not complaining, not thinking, who's going to carry this thing around throughout the desert, but enjoying it and building this home for their God. And so let's then take this to us. How does this apply? Well, we've got to make just a couple more connections. In Acts 2, verse 1, when the first Christians have gathered together for worship, Jesus has ascended to heaven. And it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now some of the language there should sound familiar to some of the things that we've seen in Exodus on Sinai and in the tabernacle. Take Exodus 19:18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The idea of these early Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit, it reminds us of the craftsmen who were filled with the Spirit to do this work. Or if you look elsewhere, 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3, which describes the dedication of the permanent temple there in Jerusalem. It says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And you'll notice there's all these similarities between Acts 2 and these other places in the Old Testament where God shows up in his dwelling place. What we have in Acts 2 is a temple dedication ceremony. But it's not the temple of purple linen and gold. It's not the temple of gold-plated rooms in the, uh, the later temple. It's not the temple of just one person, the word becoming flesh in Jesus. This is a temple that is God's people who are becoming a living and breathing tabernacle of worship to him. And many Christians have some idea that, you know, yeah, we're God's temple, right? The Holy Spirit's in me, but we don't really know when that happened. Pentecost is when God's new temple was dedicated, and it happened among the Christians. God made his people his dwelling place. This is made explicit in 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to him, the living stone, which is Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God to, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So God is building a new Eden, a new home. And you are not just participating in that work, you are are the work. You are the living stones that God is setting atop one another to build his forever home. I mean, what value has God placed upon your life? What honor has he bestowed upon your body and your soul that you would be the raw materials for where he would want to live and build his home with? 
We could think about it even in another sense, this idea of a second creation, a new creation, that God's work of new, a new heaven and new earth, that construction project has already started in your heart and is now being worked out into the rest of your life and the rest of our world. So some, a few specific applications for this. First thing, to be a Christian means fundamentally that you are united to Christ. Christ tabernacles in you, making you God's tabernacle. Christ has taken up residence in you, and that means that being a Christian isn't about following a bunch of rules or trying hard to please God, but fundamentally what it means to be a Christian is to look to Jesus in faith, and Christ then holds you and basically gives what is his to you so that you get plugged into the divine. That is what it means to be a Christian, that you get this connection with God. I've been working through uh, Van Maastricht's theoretical, practical theology this year, reading just little bits of it each day. And he puts this so beautifully. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christ lives in us and takes possession of all our faculties, your body, your mind, everything, in such a way that in all things, at all times, and everywhere, Christ's humility, obedience, holiness, and righteousness flourish and shine forth, and that Christ's life in all these ways is made manifest in us. I mean, do you get this amazing, how awesome that is, that to be a Christian is that the power of Christ takes residence in you, and you become a conduit for the glory of Christ to shine out into the rest of the world? Do you see your life as a lighthouse in this dark world that shines forth the beauty of Christ? Or have you let those windows get clouded with sin and distraction so that the light of Christ is dim? Another application related to that. This means, do you treat your body with the dignity that reflects the values that God has, the value that God has given to your body. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? And he then makes an application to why sexual sin is particularly offensive, because you're taking your body, which is part of Christ, and then uniting it with something that is sinful. And he goes on in verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God has bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So are you doing that? Are you honoring God with your body? Or do you hate your body? Or do you just use your body for your own pleasure? If it feels good, do it. Do you care for your body? Do you see it as God's temple? We can even extend this to your work. Are you doing your work for the glory of God? Are you using your hands, your labors, for God's glory to let them be reflective of his goodness and his beauty in creation? There's a way in which your hands are God's hands in this world. So, is God pleased with how you are using your hands? Or are you using them without any consideration to how they honor or don't honor God? Another application, if we are living stones that God is building into his temple, 
It means there's a corporate aspect to this. That you cannot be a Christian and not be connected to Christ's church. A stone is not a building if it's sitting by itself out in a field. A stone becomes a building when it's set upon another stone and another stone is set upon it. And one thing that means is that we are called to find the remaining stones, the people that God has planned from the beginning of time to be one of those stones in his forever home. There's a specific spot for them, spot with their name on it. And, and are we seeking out the lost? I mean, I believe that there are thousands of people in this valley who God has called to be his, but they don't know it yet. Are you praying for opportunities to share your faith? I mean, one of the most amazing things of this church is, if you've been here the last few years, you know most of the growth for the last three years is through people coming to know Jesus for the first time. Families coming to know Jesus. And we get to see that. We get to participate in that story. It is so awesome. One of our deacons, Carrie, right, was just baptized several years ago and is now serving the church in incredible ways with the rest of his family. And there are so many more people in these communities like that. But do they know Christ? Would they be able to know Christ through you? Are you Christ's light shining into the community? And it means you've got to be part of the Christian community. As I said, you can't be a building if you're just one stone alone in a field. As I said before, when we gather for Sundays, these are like dress rehearsals of assembling God's temple until one day every stone has found its place and the work is done and God will take up his permanent residence among us. And that means that as we gather, we must serve one another. You must serve in the church. I think a great way to really ask yourself if you're doing this or not is asking the question, you know, is, is how is Jordan Valley Church better because I'm here? Right now, you can think of that selfishly, but I, I don't think many of you would think of it that way. Think of it in the terms of how is it that I am contributing to this community, that my stone, me placing my stone in this building is helping support the work and blessing other people? Are you doing that? Everybody longs for a place to call home. We all have those dream homes we would love to live in. Sometimes we get them. Sometimes the rising housing prices put any home forever out on the horizon. Sometimes you get your home only to lose it. And we all discover even the best homes even have flaws. But if you're a Christian, it means you have a better home coming. It means that you are God's home and that he has designed a specific place for you in that home. And he is inviting you to help complete the work of building it till every stone has found its place in his home. And so let's do that. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to take this commission seriously, Lord. That we actually get to be part of a building project that lasts into eternity. Father, everything we build here will one day rot and turn to dust. Every project that we complete, as grand or good as it might be, can't last forever. But Lord, there is a building project that you have even equipped us to participate in that will never fade, 
will never fall apart, will never rot, will never crumble. And that is the building of your home, which is made up of us. Lord, give us a desire to be part of that. Give us a sense of the beauty and dignity of our work in this world, that we are your craftsmen, filled with your spirit, to shine forth the excellencies of Christ in a world that can be so dark. And Father, let us, Jordan Valley Church, show people what it is like to have found a home in God and for God to have his home in us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. And our time of confession can be that opportunity for you to examine your life and ask yourself, where is it that I've lost sight of that grand building project? Where is it I've allowed my heart to get wrapped up in other things that won't last? And where is it where I'm not living in a way that reflects the honor that Christ has bestowed on me? I'm going to read this prayer and then invite you to pray silently. Righteous Father, we who own more than we use, proclaim more than we experience, and request more than we need, come asking your forgiveness. We seek your salvation, and then we act like we save ourselves. We beg your forgiveness, then repeat our errors. We experience your grace and then act defeated. We rely on your power, but only in hard times. We have become confused and misguided. Forgive our every defection. Bring us to an unbroken commitment and steady trust through Jesus Christ, who is the way of hope, the truth of God, and the life of love, now and always.